0: alrighty I'll try to remember after we um, right finish. one Steve no bends. we're <laughs> <laughs> not doing so well today no I think I'm going to have to fold this hand Um, not <laughs> 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 well, wait one Steve well we haven't done we got it it's a Steve Hyde bust <laughs> okay um, so we were, we were doing the invocation of book 3 why don't we just finish that and then we'll go back to um, the invocation of book 1 and um, And then you said something intriguing about an almost invocation of book 4 Yeah. so despite the fact remember that this is all under the um, uh, subject the rubric of um, the mind being its own place. So despite the fact that he's blind, um, he still, this is line 26 or so, um, he still um, does not cease to wander where the muses haunt Clear Spring or Shady Grove or Sunny Hill, smit with a love of sacred song. Um, The muses may love sacred song, or it may be he who loves sacred song, or in some sense it's both but chief be Zion and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow nightly I visit. So every night he goes to Zion. That is to say that every night um, in his imagination, in his poetic creation, in his thought, um, he goes to Zion, to Jerusalem, um, to Um, experience that within his mind because the mind is its own place Um, nor sometimes forget so nor sometimes means I never forget Um, there is no time when I forget nor sometimes forget those other two equaled with me in fate that is those other two who had the same fate that he did which is to say blindness Nor do I ever forget, nor sometimes forget, those other two equaled with me in fate. So were I equaled with them in renown. If only I could be a poet the way they are. Um, Our fates are the same, blindness. May my blindness bring me to the same poetic um, primacy that um, they achieved. I'm blind like them, let me be great like them and those other two are Blind Thamorous and Blind Maionides. So, Thamyrus is a poet who, um, whom Homer mentions in the Iliad. Um, he is said to be the first of the poets, and Thamorous challenged the muses themselves to a poetic contest, and um, he lost being human. And he was punished for his hubris, for challenging the Muses. And his punishment was that he was um, made blind and his memory was destroyed. And Homer describes this. He says, I do not wish to be like Thamorus, whose memory was destroyed. I worship the Muses. But Thamarus is already in Homer as the greatest human poet who ever lived. Um, And Homer says, I have to be humble compared to him. Myonides is another name for Homer. It means the son of Mayan. Um So um, Homer is blind, Thamarus is blind, Milton is blind. He hopes that's not the only thing that connects him to those two. And then he does something important, which is he also compares his poetry to prophecies. That is, it's not only poetry like Homer's, Homer and Thamarus's, but he is also wishing to have the prophetic powers, of the two blind prophets, Tiresias and Phineas, prophets old. So when I do that, I feed on thoughts that voluntary move harmonious numbers. So the very thoughts that I'm having, the mind is its own place, and the very thoughts that I'm having produce harmonious numbers. They, by themselves, they produce poetry. And voluntary there is a, is a crucial word. Um, it means freedom. Uh, it comes from a word meaning will. What is voluntary means you're free to do it or not to do it. A volunteer is someone who does something freely. Um, so here again, the poetry comes out of the freedom of the will. The poetry in a sense is, the harmonious numbers in a sense are, um, the productions of freedom. Um, but could it also mean that in a sense the voluntariness is the poetry itself? That in yes. a sense it's involuntary that it comes out of Well, it? yeah, except that that's why he's stressing voluntary. That is to say that it's the will, the free will of the poem. It, it's as though the poem itself is an example of free will. Mm-hmm. It comes by itself. It's not required by anything else. It is its own... Um, uh, Think. result. Mm-hmm. The result of the thoughts that produce it. Could it also be its own motivator? Yeah. And it could also be its own motivator. Like the, the poem itself, the poetry itself has its free will to yes. be. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Good. Nice. Um, as the wakeful bird sings darkling. So that wakeful bird is the nightingale and it sings in the dark. <coughs> It sings while it itself is dark. He is composing his poetry at night. Um, What we know from his biography is that he would um, stay up late every night um, because there's no difference to him between night and day um, and compose about 20 to 40 lines um, at night. And then the next morning he would dictate them um, to his daughters who would take them down. Um, so he did this every night, um, usually in winters. Um, he, uh, summers, um, he, he uh, didn't find it nearly as easy to write or, quote, write, unquote, the poetry. Um, so, um, but it's like the nightingales, the wakeful bird sings darkling and in shadiest covert head tunes for nocturnal note. Thus with the year, so... It all sounds good, but now he's summing up. Thus, with the year, seasons return, but not to me returns day, or the sweet approach of even, or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's rose, or flocks, or herds, or human face divine. So, suddenly, this modulates into very great sadness. Um, And the sadness is what puts him in contrast with what we're about to get described in Eden, Adam and Eve and their morning hymns. To them, Morn and Eve do approach every day and they sing songs of praise for their approach, but not to Milton. But cloud instead and ever during, during there means enduring, and cloud instead and ever during, dark surrounds me from the cheerful ways of men cut off and for the book of knowledge fair that is the world itself that's the book of knowledge fair presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out so that's a really strong, amazing description of his blindness and of everything he no longer can see or have access to. Um, I wanna point one other thing out about his language. So those who, who dislike Milton, um, of whom T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound are the uh, leading um, ranters, um, dislike him for, <coughs> for their claim that he doesn't write English poetry. Um, What they think he does is he writes Latin poetry with an English vocabulary, um, but that he doesn't follow English syntax. Um, And you do get lines, uh, the line that Pound particularly objected to later in book three is, die he or justice must. Um, That's God speaking about why Adam and Eve have to um, be punished for transgressing the sin. Die he or justice must. That is either Adam has to die or justice must die, um, or him who disobeys me disobeys. Um, that's a line that Eliot particularly disliked. Um, and it's not—it's true that it's not um, something that you would confuse for um, a kind of free-flowing conversation um, in natural English. But Milton's syntax, actually, if you've taken Latin, you will know that his syntax is not nearly as um, un-English as Latin Latin syntax actually is. Um, the syntax in Latin is really hard if you're used to word order, meaning um, um, giving you syntax. That was the worst thing for me to learn. I, was, yeah. I struggled so much. It's the worst thing for um, anyone mm-hmm. learning Latin from a highly uninflected language like English. I think it's harder even... Chinese makes it even I, If I you're don't Chinese, think it's even harder. It even. Well, no one, there is, very few people know, um, you really have to know Latin well to know what proper Latin word order is. Um, Latin word order is very voluntary, but there are certain things that you would, would expect and others that you wouldn't. You don't need to know any of these rules to read Latin, but to compose in Latin, they're very, very subtle rules of word order. Um, but at any rate, Milton's word order is occasionally mildly Latinate, but only mildly so. Um, And it allows him to do something that um, generally you can't do in English poetry, but which is really important for what he's doing. And a a very good example of this is is the phrase human face divine. So what is cut off from him, what doesn't return to him, Again at line 40, thus with the year seasons return, but not to me returns day, or the sweet approach of even or morn, or sight of vernal bloom, or summer's roads, or flocks or herds, or human face divine. And in Latin you can put the adjective either before or after the noun. Um, You can sort of do it in French, but generally the adjective is after the noun in French. Um, But in Latin you can do it either way, it doesn't matter. And what that allows him to do is to have those two adjectives, human and divine, surrounding the word face. And um, you can't quite tell and you're not even supposed to be able to tell whether the adjective divine is modifying the phrase human face. The human face, that's that's what's divine or whether the adjective human Human. is modifying the face divine. That is, so the divine face, what does it look like? Well, it's a human face. That's um, Mm -hmm. one way of seeing it. And the other is the human face. What do we think about the human face? We think there's nothing more divine. And the point is that these two things are the same, that the human face to be able to see another human face, that's seeing something divine, and to be able to see God as he really is, what you would see in the true God is a human face. Um, But it's bringing the word human up to the level of the divine, but also understanding that to bring the human up to the level of the divine is to understand that the divine is not something that transcends the human, but that in its deepest sense it is human. That's really crucial for all of Paradise Lost, the idea of the human face divine. And that Latinate, mildly Latinate syntax, adjective, noun, adjective, lets Milton just do it in three words, in five syllables, human face divine. So, All of that for the Book of Knowledge Fair he is presented with a universal blank of nature's works to me expunged and raised in wisdom at one entrance quite shut out and then back to the light. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward. Celestial light, light from the heavens. If I can't see it through my eyes then shine inward and that's the invocation. That is, he calls upon (coughs) light to shine within him. And the mind, through all her powers, irradiate. So light up the mind, not the senses, but the mind. Again, remember Satan, the mind is its own place. The mind, through all her powers, irradiate. There plant eyes in the mind. Put eyes there, plant eyes as though the mind is the garden that things are planted in. Again, here you should be thinking of the Garden of Adonis again, Um, and all that is planted there, all the animal forms that are planted there. The idea of planting eyes is slightly grotesque, but the point is that if you resist the grotesqueness, if you do the work, if he, Milton, does the work of resisting the grotesqueness there, then you can see why the garden of Adonis or the garden of the mind should contain um, human form as well. So the grotesque version of this is the matrix that is farming babies. And also classicist um, things like um, Juno and the eyes of the peacock. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's not the grotesque version. No. That's the other thing he's thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So their plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, And again, we're going to see a lot of mist in the Garden of Eden, but burn it all off. That I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. So by looking inward, I can see and and tell of those things that the outward sight, mortal sight, could not see. So that's... um, Milton's version of the mind being its own place. If you go back to book one, the invocation of book one, um, I've never actually done a course where we've carefully done all five, as I think they are, invocations. Um, and maybe we will now, or maybe we won't, but let's look at any rate uh, at the very famous invocation of book one. We started talking about it yesterday um, because it, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. as the um, argument to book one um tells you, it begins, the first book proposes first in brief the whole subject, man's disobedience and the loss thereupon of paradise wherein he was placed. Um, Then, touches the prime cause of his fall, the serpent, or rather Satan Satan and the serpent, etc. So, first it tells you the whole subject. What is the subject of paradise lost? Man's first disobedience. The loss of paradise. And the, yeah. Um, and to unpack that a little bit, it is man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. Fruit can kind of be have two meanings. Yeah, what are the two like meanings? The actual fruit on the tree and then also the result of eating the fruit, from the tree, also, like the product of. Right, that. but there's a third. Because this? all the rest of the, the children of man are fruit of that forbidden them. tree. Yes. Good, good. No, um, oh, I just said the fruit of that action. Yes. So, but that's a, that's a crucial ambiguity there because you, what you might think when you're first reading it, on a first reading of Paradise Lost is, okay, man's first disobedience, fine. That's something grand and abstract and important. And the fruit of that forbidden tree, oh, now we're going to find out all about that fruit, um, why that fruit is so important, um, what it is in that fruit that makes it so different from all the other fruit in the garden, um, how you might be able to derive good pharmaceuticals from the fruit <laughs> of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, which might help with Alzheimer's or other um, memory problems um, It would return knowledge to the brain. Um, and that's the wrong reading. That is to say you're tempted to think that this is going to be about the apple. And the apple is, as you will see, is a complete afterthought in the poem. There is nothing about the apple which is interesting in this poem. That's really crucial for Milton, that there's nothing in the apple or in the tree that is remotely interesting in themselves. All that matters about the apple and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the only thing that matters about it is that it's forbidden. It could be any tree God picked, I mean, this isn't made explicit, but it's implicitly clear that God picked a tree at random Mm -hmm. and said, that tree don't touch. And it's only symbolic. It's allegory, you could say, without anything literal corresponding to it without its having any magical powers. So that in a way, I'm I'm gonna say this quickly but I'm gonna try and explain this um, as we go on. But that in a way is what happens if you have allegory in the miltonic sense occurring only in the mind. That is what we saw as allegory in Spencer is that what happens in the mind is externalized into the world. Um, Everything that's on your mind you then meet a figure who um, represents that thing. You're feeling proud, and you come to the house of pride. Uh, You're feeling um, impotent, and therefore um, uh, very, very um, um, uh, inferior to other men. So in comes the giant orgoglio, who's the exact opposite of you. You're feeling despair, you meet despair. You're feeling um, irascible, you meet anger. Um, all those things are stuff in your mind just gets projected out of your, out of your mind into allegorical figures in the world. Um, in Paradise Lost, we're, we're kind of going, in the allegorical moments of Paradise Lost, we're going the other way. That is to say that um, the tree, you see a tree and it's forbidden. And it's just a tree. But the fact that it's forbidden makes it mentally something of very great importance. Mentally, the tree suddenly has power over you. Not because, so just to, to tell you what happens, um, because you know the story, is that the point of this story is that, to, is that to do what God tells you not to do is what gives you knowledge of good and evil. Doesn't matter what it was that you weren't supposed to do, it's <coughs> arbitrary. But as soon as you do something that you are conscious of being disobedient in doing, as soon as you do it, then you've eaten the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because, do, because being disobedient is what eating that fruit is. So it's not that eating the fruit um, is an allegory for disobedience it's that disobedience becomes named as eating the fruit. It sounds like it's almost the same thing, but it isn't. The direction is different. Um, It's a kind of reverse allegory that's going on here. Or another way to put it is to say, it's almost as though the allegorical force of the poem comes out of Adam and Eve rather than Adam and Eve doing something which gets represented allegorically. It's not that Adam and Eve um, decide to be disobedient, so a fruit of disobedience appears to them and they pluck it. It's rather that um, being disobedient, um, doing something disobedient, turns the doing of that thing into an allegory in their own mind. That is, that's the fruit, but it's an allegory, it's a metaphorical fruit. It's fruit as the result of the forbidden tree and fruit as what happens because they've eaten of the tree, which is simply randomly disobed- randomly picked as um, the place where they would have to show or not show obedience. Yeah? Would this have been one of Milton's more like heretical... No, he said something similar in Area Pagetica. Um, that is to say, it's, it's certainly Protestant. Um, because part of, uh, I, we, we talked a bit about this in Spencer, um, not as much as Spencer would have wanted us to talk about it, but a bit. And um, we also have to talk about it in Milton as well. Um, so the great distinction, um, according to the Protestants, Um, between Protestant and Catholic doctrine, um, as I said before, um, is that the Protestants were protesting against the power of the church. um, And they thought that um, it's the human conscience and the Bible that should determine you in what you think the right and the wrong thing to do is. So it's really crucial. Um, You know, this is an issue that still comes up. It's a, a secularized version but perhaps not a surprising one is in the current Supreme Court where um, Scalia has explicitly said, this is, this is astonishing that he would say this, but it also makes sense that nothing in the Constitution, do people know about this? Nothing in the Constitution um, makes it wrong to execute an innocent man um, for a capital crime. Um, innocence is not a defense. Um, and if you had a fair trial, and if um, things were done the way they were supposed to be, um, and if you're convicted, later proof of innocence does not constitutionally mandate the overturning of the conviction, even if you can prove that you were innocent after the fact. And this comes up a lot now because of DNA evidence. Um, and Scalia, and here, believe it or not, he's still in a minority on the Supreme Court. Um, but Scalia is very explicit that proof of innocence doesn't entitle you not to be executed. Um, and what, what tends to happen is people come up with exonerating evidence after filing deadlines have passed. And so um, people can show with, without, with the sh- without the shadow of a doubt, they don't they they're not proving that that um uh, they're they're not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt they can actually show that someone else has done it and Scalia says nothing in the Constitution means that that means that they should be freed and when other people and particularly Rehnquist said this and Rehnquist was um as a lot of legal scholars um, say, someone who should have been making license plates, not laws, um, because he almost certainly perjured himself when he was um, being questioned by Congress for confirmation for the Supreme Court. Um, But even Rehnquist said, it shocks the conscience to think that we would execute a person we knew to be innocent. We would allow the execution of someone we knew to be innocent to proceed. And Scalia said, it doesn't matter how tender your conscience is. What we have to do is follow the Constitution and the conscience has nothing to do with it. Um, The Constitution is about how you apply laws and about making sure you follow procedures. And if you look to your own conscience, Scalia says, you're looking away from the Constitution. So that idea that you don't trust your conscience is largely a Catholic idea. Um, not after Vatican II so much, but the idea is your conscience is corrupt. If you were trying to simply trust your own conscience, um, you would be